0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Lynn Gale. Gale is an Algonquin Anishinaabe woman who has roots in the Ottawa River Valley, though she lives in Peterborough, Ontario. She has, over the years, been involved in a great many different kinds of things related to struggles for survival and for social change. One way of thinking about what brings together all of those elements is that they flow from the act of centering indigenous ways of knowing and acting accordingly. Indigenous ways of knowing, among much else, emphasize that we know the world in embodied, situated ways. That is, both what we know and how we know it depend on who we are, on our circumstances, and on our experiences. So among the many horrible and complex ways that 500 years of colonization and genocide have impacted the lives of Indigenous peoples, and the many ingenious and resilient ways in which Indigenous peoples have responded, there are two issues in particular that she has focused on, based on centering her own experiences. One is a response to the Canadian state's ongoing use of the Indian Act legislation to separate people, particularly women, from their nations and communities. In her case, it is through a policy that, when paternity is not known or not stated, assumes that the father of a given child does not fit the legal category of status Indian, which has implications for descendants' ability to access that status. The other is the land claims process in which the Algonquin people are engaged. It is the only way in which the Canadian state has shown any willingness at all to recognize even a fragment of what are really, for the Algonquins, unsurrendered and unextinguished rights to the land, And Gale argues that rather than being a path towards a good future, it is yet another colonial process that will end up doing little more than reinforcing her people's dispossession. Over the years, Gale has pursued a lengthy court battle, she has done research, she has written scholarly articles, and she has engaged with a wide range of people in the community in a wide range of ways, including, as you will hear about in the interview, by publishing several books, she wants her work to contribute to anti-colonial struggle, to a revitalization and resurgence of her own people's culture, and to teaching hard truths to Canadians about our past and present. She talks with me about the issues she has worked on, about the different approaches she has taken, and about Indigenous knowledge. We spoke by Skype to phone from Peterborough.
1: Koi koi, Scott. This is Lynn Gale. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm an Algonquin from the Ottawa River Valley, but I've never lived there. Right now, I'm living in Peterborough, Ontario. I'm working on, I would say, two major issues or major topics. One of them is my work regarding the long-term sex discrimination in the Indian Act, regarding the status provisions where children whose father is not on the birth certificate, the signature is not there, Aboriginal Affairs assumes that that person is a non-Indian and they are potentially denied Indian status registration and discriminated against based on that lack of knowledge. I've been working on that for 28 years and I'm in the role of a plaintiff, so I actually have a Section 15 Charter Challenge regarding that issue because I don't know who my grandfather is. Aboriginal Affairs assumes it's a white man and denies me Indian status registration, and there's a lot of implications around that. So finally, it was heard in the Interior Superior Court of Justice in October. So that's a major area that I work in, and it takes a lot of effort from me to pursue that, and I do it in different ways and raise awareness about it. There is a long history of women, indigenous women, doing the work to remove the Sex Discrimination and the Indian Act. I always like to begin by crediting those women, such as Mary Tuax Early, Jeanette Clavier laval Yvonne Bedard, Sandra Lovelace, More recently, Sharon MacGyver and myself. So the Indian Act has been amended twice to bring it in line with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but that process has failed remedial legislation. What I mean by that is Canada continually refuses to eliminate the sex discrimination. So there's the issue of the second generation cutoff.
0: This was a provision introduced by reforms to the Indian Act made in 1985, ostensibly to remove sex discrimination from the legislation. The earlier version of that legislation granted status to someone whose father had status but not their mother, but denied status to someone whose mother had status but not their father. The new version entitled anyone with one status parent and one non-status parent to have status themselves, but the catch was that it was a different kind of status. Anyone with that new flavor of status who had a child with a non-status person could not pass their status along to that child. Hence, second-generation cutoff. This is simply a new mechanism of separating people from their communities and nations.
1: So there's the issue of the second-generation cutoff rule, which is what Chair MacGyver is continuing to address. And then there's the issue that I'm addressing, which is Aboriginal affairs and state of paternity policy, which they birthed in 1985. So in 1985, they amended the Indian Act to remove the sex discrimination, but as I said, it was failed remedial legislation in that they created new kinds of sex discrimination, such as the second generation cutoff rule and the unknown paternity policy. So prior to 1985, there was a policy that protected children that were born out of wedlock or where the father's signature wasn't on the birth certificate. But in eighty five they removed that protective provision from the Indian Act and became silent on the issue. And then aboriginal affairs developed an internal policy where they assumed that the father is a non-Indian person. And in that situation, children are potentially denied Indian status registration and thus their treaty rights and many other things, such as not being able to live on the reserve or having their vote carry less weight in the event of a land claims process and also identity issues. So in 1985, I began the process of trying to get Indian status registration. My grandmother was instated, my father was instated, and I was denied. And so that's when I approached Aboriginal Legal Services of Toronto and asked them if they would help me pursue that matter through the court system. And the other topic I'm working on is the Algonquin land claim and self-government process. Again, I'm acting from personal experience as an Algonquin from the Ottawa River Valley and as a non-status Algonquin. I did my doctoral dissertation on that topic using an Indigenous way of knowing and I have recently produced a book called The Truth That Wampum Tells with Fernwood. And so I'm doing a lot of work about the ongoing issues with the land claim and self-government process as well. So a lot of people don't know that, although Parliament Hill resides on Algonquin territory, the Algonquins were denied a treaty during the historic treaty process. Continually denied, while at the same time several policies denied the Algonquins land rights. Like they were literally denied the right to own land, and as I said, denied a treaty process. And so I'm working on that area as well, and in 1991, I think it was 91 and 92, Canada and Ontario finally accepted the Algonquins of Ontario land claim process. But what a lot of people don't know is the land claims process is laden with a lot of issues and is not rooted in, in a traditional treaty. So I'm doing a lot of work in that area as well.
2: Outline a little bit more what some of those issues with the land claim process are and what the implications are for the Algonquin people.
1: There's a lot of issues with that. First of all, they developed policy unilaterally. Canada developed a policy unilaterally without collaboration or consultation. And those policies narrowly define what our rights are to land. And so when we're at the so-called negotiating table, that's what Russell Diablo likes to say, a termination table, because Canada sets these very tight, tight parameters around what we are allowed to negotiate for. And despite policy review and reform, what Canada does is just tweak the language a little bit, but keep the same underlying principles of terminating our land rights, which is a form of genocide. And so that's really, really significant, is understanding the difference between negotiating a treaty on a nation-to-nation basis, where we're talking about sharing and respect of jurisdiction, versus negotiating under colonial policy, known as the of land claim policy. So there's a lot of issues with that.
2: Talk about some of the key approaches that you've used to act in each of these major issues.
1: Academics might understand it as operating within an indigenous research paradigm. What that means is I'm putting indigenous knowledge at the core. I'm putting experiential knowledge at the core, recognizing and valuing that it is knowledge. And also, in terms of my dissemination, reaching people and disseminating the knowledge it's really important that we reach people versus just right for an ivory tower. So within that, I have taken a lot of different approaches to disseminate the knowledge.
2: And out for listeners, many of whom are probably not familiar with the term and what it implies, what do you mean by indigenous knowledge?
1: A lot of people don't really understand that indigenous knowledge is a valid system of knowledge and it has its own way of knowing and being. I always like to compare it to Western science, laboratory science, because sometimes comparing is really a useful tool. It has limitations, but it's a useful tool to compare. And so indigenous knowledge, first of all, values that knowledge predates humans, that the trees were here, the water was here, the birds were here. They were all here doing the work that they do, and so knowledge predates humans. But then at the same time, humans do create knowledge. And in an indigenous worldview, indigenous knowledge philosophy values that we try to be as close to natural law as we can versus moving away and outside of it. A common thing that we say is that when you produce a construct or you produce theory or you produce knowledge, you really need to walk it back to creation and make sure that it's a moral structure in that sense. But also indigenous knowledge values that knowledge is personal and subjective, that there's many truths, that type of thing. It doesn't set up this whole idea of being objective and that knowledge is only found in atoms and molecules, for example.
2: And tell me a bit about how you have mobilized indigenous knowledge in the two issues that you've focused on.
1: That was really hard because the first thing I had to do, I had to be very brave, like the hummingbird teaches us. Hummingbirds will defend their territory even against the bears, so I had to be very brave in putting myself at the center and embracing and sharing my subjectivity and my experiences. A lot of people might think that that's being very egocentric, but in actual fact, it, it isn't. It's more a statement about where is knowledge and where is truth. So that was one of the first things I really had to work with, and be brave with sharing where I am and what I know and putting myself at the center. And then another thing I do is I try and write for community people. It's a critique of the academy that we write for the ivory tower or we write for academics or intellectuals and what's the value of that for community people. So after I wrote my book, The Truth at Waltham Tells with Fernwood, it's a five chapters and lengthy chapters, I also wrote, I'm going to call it a sister book, called Makadengue, Sharing Canada's Colonial Process Through Blackface Methodology.
0: And just a a quick interruption, as listeners may be unsure how the term blackface methodology is being used here. In part, it draws on Anishinaabe traditions of teaching and learning, in which the speakers face is an important element for them communicating their message. And it also draws on an Anishinaabe practice in times of bereavement, which, and I'm quoting Gail's writing here, involved painting one's face with black ash or paint to signify one's state of being, end quote. You can learn more about the significance of these ideas in terms of her methodology at lingale.com.
1: That book is really geared towards new learners of colonization, community people, persons with disabilities. And how I did that is I used a greater white space, shorter chapters, some visuals, things like that, to reach a broader population or a broader audience. So that was one of the things I did. Another thing, I'm blogging. And I think I have about 75 or 76 blogs out there. And then use of social media, such as Facebook, to disseminate them. I started a petition. That's a great way to reach people about the sex discrimination in the Indian Act. And I'm able to message them pretty quickly. What else? Videos. I've created some videos a lot of people can't read or a lot of people like to have visuals. So I've created five videos to help in that way. And then, of course, to house all this, I learned how to build a website. So I have my own website, www.LyndGale.com.
2: And when you are approaching the two core issues that you've been working on,
1: How do
2: they look different? How how are they understood differently when you approach them in a way that centers indigenous knowledge versus dominant Western frameworks of understanding the world?
1: How do they look different? Well, my Section 15 Tartar Challenge places me as a plaintiff right in the core, so that's different than a researcher who's looking at it from the outside, so I'm right on the inside. And actually, I would say the same thing with the Algonquin Lion Claim and self-government process. I'm right at the center of it and I make no excuses for my subjectivity and my experience. I'd rather, I embrace them. A lot of people might think that there's a lot of limitations to that, but there's also a lot of value and gifts to that. How else? Well, again, it's just my methodology. I'm not taking an anthropological or a sociological approach. I'm using holistic way of knowing, both heart knowledge and mind knowledge. The heart is a repository of knowledge, just as the mind is. I think those are the major ways in which it differs from other ways of knowing.
2: It seems that in the work that you've done, there are a couple of key instances where you've chosen to engage with dominant structures. In the court challenge, it's taking this knowledge and this fight into the courts and also in terms of doing graduate work at a mainstream university, what are kind of the, the, the strengths and advantages, but also the risks and weaknesses of engaging directly with those kinds of institutions?
1: What I'd like to say to people is that there are paradoxes, contradictions, and hypocrisy. First of all, to talk about my Section 15 Charter Challenge. So I started that, you know, when I was in my 20s. And 28 years later, I'm 52 years old. I'm not so sure I would do that today, but as you move along the process and get deeper into the process, you really have to think about, do you walk away from this or do you continue? And, of course, going through the court system and trying to be an status Indian could be argued as being colonial, and I don't disagree with that. But at the same time, I also realize that there's young mothers in northern communities that need the treaty rights that comes along with Indian status registration. And so for them, I will continue, but also I will continue because Canada, broader Canada, needs to understand that this Charter of Rights and Freedom do not seem to be applied to Indigenous women's rights. Hopefully, more and more people will wake up and say, well, this is the third time sex discrimination has gone through the court system. It's obvious now that the court system is not working for Indigenous people, that there's a bigger issue going on here where Canada continues to deny Indigenous people and Indigenous women. But I think also what people need to understand is because I'm a non-status Algonquin person, that. Being a non-status person carries into the Algonquin land claim process where my representation and my vote has less weight because I'm a non-status Algonquin. So for people who say that I have a colonial understanding and I'm going to become a status Indian and going through the courts, well, they don't realize that there's a connection to the vote in the land claim and self-government process. So it's not as linear and simple as Lynn gyal suffers from colonization or suffers from a colonial understanding in her approach. It's much more complicated than that. Again, it's not just about me, it's about other issues. In terms of traveling through the academy to learn that knowledge, well, colonization did happen. And in my process of trying to learn about the treaty, land claim, and self-government process and whether it was a valid process today, I needed structures to guide my thinking. And at the community level, elders did not have that knowledge, although a lot of people would be very mad at me for saying that. But elders did not have the knowledge to teach me that the land claim and trust government process is proceeding through unilaterally constructed policies that have gone through reform but little change. So I had to go through the structures of the academy to come to that understanding. Now, a lot of people might say that, oh, that Lynn Gale, she's got a colonial mindset because she's gone through the academy. I think, again, that's a very narrow understanding of the complexity of the issue.
2: Tell me about some of the conversations that you've had with ordinary Indigenous people, ordinary Canadians, about these two key issues.
1: There's a lot of Indigenous women who do understand why I'm moving forward with the Sex Discrimination and the Indian Act. But there are also a lot of people who don't understand it. Again, they think I have a colonial mindset and they don't realize that there's a lot of young mothers in northern communities who need that Indian status registration. They also don't realize that I'm doing my part to contribute to the momentum of resistance and that's really important. But then there's also a lot of secular Canadians who don't understand the long-term sex discrimination and they just need a teacher, which, you know, burdens the colonized person to be their teacher because Canada certainly won't teach them. And I think in terms of the land claim and self-government process, again, because they've been educated through Canada's curriculum, they have no idea what the difference between a treaty and a land claim is And they don't understand the importance of paying attention to words like extinguish and release and relinquish and how they really mean the same thing at the level of practice. And so spending a lot of time telling that knowledge over and over and over again.
2: Tell me a bit more about your two recent books, the two that are connected to each other.
1: The first book that I'm going to talk about is The Truth That Wampum Tells, my Deboy when on the Algonquin land claims process. And I published it with Fernwood. It's five chapters. There's a lot of diagrams in them because I value that diagrams and maps and photographs help people. Although it's written with a leftist press, it's a little bit academic. In the back, there's a timeline, and I think that timeline is really significant. So, for example, it talks about in 1853, through the Public Lands Act, settlers were granted lands, but the Algonquins were denied. And again, in 1868, through the Free Grant and Homestead Act, settlers were granted free land, but the Algonquins were literally denied. And then it goes through many dates, like talking about when Canada criminalized our culture and criminalized our ability to hire lawyers for our land rights. So I think it's a really valuable book. I really like it. And then the other one I wrote, again, it's Makadengwe Sharing Canada's Colonial Process Through Blackface Methodology, and it's a community-based book. And I actually published it myself through Algonquin Anishinaabe Kwe Publishing, and I used this book for like a fundraiser book to continue the work I do. It is also intended for community people and new learners. The Makadengwe book, what makes it also different is it's organized in three parts. So one part I just talk about the treaty land claim process. The second part I talked about the sex discrimination in the Indian Act. And then the third part of Makadengwe, I then say, okay, so what did I learn in these two colonial contexts? What have I learned? Because when I was in my 20s, I was really trying to understand whether the land claim and self-government process was a good process for Indigenous people. And I really had faith in the court system. And now, you know, 30 years later, my eyes are wide open and I realize that Canada continues on with its termination policies and the genocide of the Algonquin people and and all indigenous people. So I've gone through a a long 30-year learning journey. Part of the reason why I work so hard to disseminate the knowledge is trying to construct meaning for what I've been through.
2: I quoted these phrases in the first message I sent to you about doing this interview about one of the things that you see yourself as doing is as a process of making the invisible visible and of challenging Canadians' treasured ideology of Canada. Talk about what that means and what that looks like to do that.
1: That's really hard. You know, when the oppressed have to teach the oppressor what their country has done or what Canada, the oppressor, has done, a lot of people don't like to hear that knowledge are upset when they hear that knowledge and they want to believe Canada is a great country. A lot of people say to me, well, I like Canada. I think Canada is great. I'm proud to be a Canadian because it gave my family and my parents a good beginning. It accepted them. And I usually have to say to them that what they just said was offensive and selfish and that the wealth that their parents gained came off the back of Indigenous people. Of course, a lot of people don't like to hear that knowledge, right? So that's really hard. And then because Canada controls their body politic and controls the education system, there's a constant white wall that you're up against. And you have to constantly go over and over and over and over explaining to people what Canada did. And a lot of people, they say very obnoxious things. They look for reasons not to believe you. And it is really hard for Indigenous people because we have the embodied knowledge of that harm. We embody the knowledge of the residential school system, of the land claim process, of the oppression. We embody the pain of that and the heart knowledge of that. And we're constantly being the teachers of, of people who are privileged. And sometimes the knowledge isn't packaged in a nice, pleasant way. And then what ends up happening is the people get upset because it wasn't packaged in a nice, pleasant way. That makes it really hard because the knowledge of what Canada has done is emotional for both peoples. And so it's really not fair that the oppressed people who have less have to become the teacher of the settler people.
2: Do you have any quick words for how potential settler allies can engage in ways that reduce the burden on indigenous people, indigenous teachers? to do that educating work?
1: I think allies have to do some thinking and some reading. There's a lot of resources on my website. I think what a lot of settler people don't understand is that there is an indigenous paradigm out there, there is an indigenous world out there, there is indigenous philosophy out there, and that when they hear something that they don't understand, they might want to have in their mind that, That's a paradigm that I'm not quite familiar with, and I'm going to be careful with my assumptions. All too often, people have this commodified notion of knowledge, and they don't realize that they have a personal responsibility to learn what Canada has done, but also to learn to value that the Indigenous paradigm does exist, and it has its own internal logic. Oftentimes, I find that settler people are in their paradigm and they're using their assumptions to judge my work or to judge other people's work. And I think they need to be careful with their assumptions.
2: And what are the key things coming up for you and coming up for the change work that you do in the next year, things that you're most excited about in that work?
1: I don't think I really have a privilege to be excited <laughs> about what I do. It really is hard work what I do. I I mean, I'm going to be happy when the judge renders his decision, although I am prepared that there will probably be an appeal whether we win or lose. And I'm not really particularly happy about that. I would like to put this whole Indian status thing behind me. I find it to be a burden. I feel like I have weights tied around my ankles. I am excited to go to the Dufferin County Cultural Resource Circle. They're having me in as a speaker, and I'm going to be opening my wampum bundle and sharing it, and I'm looking forward to that because the wampum bundle is really special. And again, with Indigenous People Solidarity Movement, I look forward to opening my bundle and sharing it with them as well.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Lynn Gale. To learn more about her work, go to lynngale.com. That's L-Y-N-N-G-E-H-L dot com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's TalkingRadical.ca.